I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Origins of the Modern Public. The idea of the public came into being in a time when it was only property white men who were really in possession of the means of public opinion. And gradually, the people have fought their way in, and the tension between the way publics summon more people in and the way mechanisms of power keep them out is the great horizon of a lot of modern politics. At the beginning of his book, Publics and Counterpublics, American literary scholar Michael Warner proposes a question that he says has the potential to reframe the way we understand the modern social world. The question is, what is a public? It's a question that's been in the air in recent years, as social identities have fractured, new media have created new connections, and groups formerly excluded from public life have demanded public recognition. An older sense of the public and its proprieties has been destabilized. Some writers say that the public is declining or even disappearing. Others that it's just changing, as it has so often in the past. But how would one know without first being able to answer Michael Warner's question? What is a public? Today on Ideas, Michael Warner shares his answers with David Cayley as we continue with our series, The Origins of the Modern Public. Here's David Cayley. In this Ideas series, I've been presenting the work of a research project called Making Publics. Headquartered at McGill, it's a group of Canadian and American scholars who've been studying early modern Europe in the hope of discovering the roots of our contemporary conception of the public. Early modern meaning roughly the years between 1500 and 1700. At the beginning of that time, publicness was a quality possessed by those entitled to rule. Monarchs, ministers of state, nobles of the realm, and no one else had any claim to a share in its glory. Two hundred years later, the public was beginning to be what we think it is, a virtual and ever-changing space where private individuals combine and recombine according to their principles and their preferences. What happened in the meanwhile, according to the Making Publics researchers, was that new media, new markets, and new forms of knowledge began to allow people to form the bonds between strangers that characterize what we now call a public. They've been investigating specific agents of this transformation, from the circulation of printed musical scores in 16th century Venice to the market for globes in 17th century England. But they've also had an eye on the big theoretical debates about the nature of the public that have gone on in our time. As I've listened in on their deliberations, five thinkers have come up again and again as points of theoretical orientation. Jürgen Habermas, whose book The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere set many of the terms for subsequent discussion and remains the defining landmark in the field. Philosophers Hannah Arendt and Charles Taylor historian of science Bruno Latour, and finally, American literary scholar Michael Warner. It's his book, Publics and Counterpublics, that I want to look at in today's program. Michael Warner is the chairman of the English department at Yale. I sat down with him recently in the kitchen of his Manhattan apartment, and he told me that his investigation of publics was provoked by a discovery he made while writing his first book, The Letters of the Republic, Publication and the Public Sphere in 18th Century America. People behaved and seemed to take for granted that the meaningful, the most general and most meaningful dimension of their social life was in print media. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. When did that start? Where did that come from? And uh, how did people understand it? So I, was, I be, just began looking at 18th century print culture 
and realized that one of the things that made it feel like the necessary fabric of the social world was people were beginning to talk in terms of publics in ways that they hadn't before. So the, I wrote that book trying just to describe the way people circulated print and thought about print. And it was only later that I realized that the concept of the public needed a little more clarification. And we couldn't think of it in the common sense ways, like for example, it's just a, a large group of people, because that makes invisible a lot of the really special and interesting things about the idea of a public. So then I thought, well, maybe I could try to spell out some of those special and interesting qualities that distinguish a public from, let's say, a group or an audience or even a people, although our idea of the people turns out to have a lot of strong resemblances to our idea of a public, and to try to come up with a description of the idea that would apply in all the different contexts in which we find people organizing themselves in this way. In this quest for a general description, one thing stood out for Michael Warner as the defining feature of a public. He's already alluded to it in saying that 18th century Americans found the most meaningful dimension of their social lives in print media. To me, the fundamental thing is that it's a way of grasping the circulation of media themselves. It's not primarily a thought about a group of people, that is to say, an actually existing finite number of people, because we never have a very concrete idea of who those people are who are part of the public. And that's one of the interesting things about it, that we assume that there are lots of strangers out there who are sharing our tastes, having similar opinions, responding to similar events, having similar senses of the fashion trends and of popular music and so on. And yet we don't actually know anything about how many such people there are or, or where they live. They're imaginary to us. And yet we feel that they must have very strong, intimate commonalities with us because of the same circulating media. So. By talking about a public, we really mean to describe, let's say, not the voters of the United States or the voters of Canada, but we really mean to describe who's paying attention to the same media forms that I'm paying attention to. And so already, a lot of the central elements that I think are distinctive of the concept of the public are, are there. One is that it's about the circulation of media forms. Another is that it's entirely dependent on who's paying attention, who picks up these media, who watches the TV show, who tunes in to the radio station, who picks up the, this book, who subscribes to the newspaper. All these things are constantly fluctuating, and the public is shifting accordingly. And so circulation, the dependence on attention and uptake, and the unfolding through time of our assessment of these trends and, and movements, spontaneous movements among people. Those are all essential elements of the idea of the public. A public, for Michael Warner, is a form of attention. This attention is solicited or summoned by media, a term he uses in a broad sense for any means by which ideas and images circulate and people become aware of one another. This is a key part of his definition, because not all media summon people in this way. If you have uh, media that circulate, but not in order to call a public together or call attention to a public, letters, correspondence is a good example of this. People have been writing letters for centuries. Does that make a public? Well, not exactly. Not in the way that you can talk about when we have these forms that are manifestly trying to call in people to pay attention in as large numbers as possible and address that group with some, in some way that allows them to be aware of each other or have some sense, some vital active sense that they aren't reading this novel as though they're the only person in the world reading this novel. Or they're not, the newspaper that they're reading doesn't have a subscription base of one. When we take up these forms, we see that other people are taking them up, and we see that the forms address us with a consciousness of that, that is, address us in a way that 
makes us aware of all the other people who are paying attention. To be part of a public is to feel as if one is being addressed, spoken to, summoned. And this address is both personal and impersonal. James Joyce said, for example, that his Finnegan's Wake was written for the ideal insomniac. Some night that might be you or me. One often feels directly and personally addressed by a novel. And yet the book itself is an entirely impersonal object, available and identical to one and all. And this dialectic of personal and impersonal runs through many experiences of publicness, Michael Warner says. There are some ways of thinking about, some very powerful and prestigious ways of thinking about the public that emphasize impersonal procedures. For example, argument about public policy, public opinion about government, is understood to be general in a way and to be valid not because of who says that they feel this or that about healthcare policy, but what the mass of people are saying about healthcare policy. So the authority of public opinion comes not from its being my opinion or its being the president's opinion, but from its being the generality of opinion. So there's in fact a very strong value in modern ideas of the public on a kind of impersonality. At the same time, publics only get to be publics because we invest a wide range of energies, desires, forms of attention, optimism, opinion, thinking, and feeling in the circulating media we take up. And the publics that these media create are publics of private life as well as public life. They're publics of taste, my consumer habits, my fashion awareness, my sense of what communities I might belong to, my sense of what the gender and sexual landscape is like. All kinds of things that we think of as very deeply personal and, and private are formed in modern societies through our awareness of media. So publics have this dual character. They are in private life. You know, when, if we subscribe to a newspaper or tune into a television show, that's private life. That's not because the government mandated that we do this. It's not because we do this necessarily in view of large audiences. It's often done in the privacy of the home and has all the resonance of private life. At the same time, this is where we find the media that give us these most, our most powerful ideas of the general populace, of the kind of policy questions and judgment questions and forms of historical consciousness that are most general to the society. Michael Warner's Publics and Counterpublics appeared in 2002. A lively discussion about the nature and meaning of the public had been underway for some time. One of the things that had touched it off was the appearance in 1989 of German philosopher Jürgen Habermas's The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, a book written nearly 30 years before, but late appearing in English. Habermas was one of the first to see, and to say, that the new sense of the public that emerged in the 18th century was founded, first of all, on a new sense of the private. Private persons made up the new public, and private experience informed the critical judgments that this new public brought to bear on public matters. Habermas's point was important to a new generation of scholars just coming of age when his book was published. Michael Warner was one. He argues that uh, somewhere around the late 17th, early 18th century, there was a transition from an essentially courtly conception of the public in which kings would embody the public but also put themselves on display before crowds as a way of making manifest what's public. And the modern idea of a public is very, very different. Uh, and it has to do with 
the dispersed commonalities of strangers who find themselves through circulating media. Now, that's my emphasis on it. Habermas tells a slightly different story, which is that people come into awareness of themselves as private persons through media like novels and newspapers and then come together to make public use of their reason. Well, either way you tell the story, that means that the new ideas of the public also entails new ways of being private, new uh, ways of attaching importance to private life. And a lot of what we think of as the activity of the public, reading, watching television, listening to radio, is in fact also the material of private life. It takes place in private settings. It treats matters of interest to people in their private life. So why do we continue to think of these things as being importantly private and other things as being importantly public when in fact they're in the same media and constantly involving both of these senses? And Habermas has a strong answer to that question, which is this is the way we think of the relation between the state and civil society, between government, which is confined to one sphere of activity and is subject to public opinion in another way, but government in that sense answers to a people whose primary existence is not as citizens, but as people, as ordinary people. And, uh, and what happens... Therefore, as private people. As private people, exactly. And so what happens... So, you know, with these, these concepts remain very powerful with us in organizing our political culture and our understanding of what government is. But in fact, the media that create both our sense of the political public and our sense of private life are doing these simultaneously and in ways that carry a lot of resonance from one to the other. Jürgen Habermas recognized that the singular thing about modern publics is that they derive their authority from a sphere outside the state, a public sphere which is the free creation of private persons. In his structural transformation of the public sphere, he argues that the initial promise of this bourgeois public sphere was later largely undone by the hypnotic power of modern mass media. For this reason, it is sometimes said that he idealizes the 18th century world. But Michael Warner thinks that this is an unfair and unfounded criticism. I think there is often a lot of misunderstanding of Habermas on this point, or at least there's an interesting interpretive question uh, about Habermas on this point, because he's often said to be nostalgic about the early uh, public sphere, the 18th century public sphere, the coffee houses newspaper version of the public sphere, even though that's when it was most limited to bourgeois white men. And I think that's a misreading of him. I do think that he thinks that period in which this idea of a public first congealed introduced something utopian into modern society. But he means utopian in the sense of a strong picture of what an ideal and just society would be. I don't think he believes it actually was a utopia, but it introduced this possibility, this hope, this picture of what society should be that then people could appeal to. And they could say, look, there's a contradiction here between this idea of a public sphere, between the idea that we all shape our destiny through public opinion, and the fact that only propertyed white men are controlling the media. That, that became something they could use, that people could use to mobilize, to point to as a contradiction, to begin developing their own media, their own sense of a public, and really challenge power in a new way. So I think from Habermas's point of view, the history of the gradual broadening and this, the long series of challenges people have fought against the limited base of the public sphere is proof of its utopian appeal. That is that this has been one, one of the interesting ways that the ideal of the public sphere has been variously realized by different groups. At the same time, uh, that hasn't just been a democratizing trend. And, th and this is where his analysis gets really complicated. Because that 
series of challenges that have broadened the base of the public sphere have happened in the same time that capital has allowed more and more management, you know, the forms of capitalist culture have allowed more and more management of what goes on in the largest arena of the public sphere, the mass public. So he makes an, he makes an argument that there are contradictory tendencies in the public sphere contradictory tendencies between the ideals that make it possible and the actual practices that uh, people are engaged in, and that as we have gone on progressively in history, some of those contradictions have been exaggerated and intensified by the growing force of capital in organizing media and by some anti-democratic uh, tendencies in the way people think about media. Now. I think he's got some very strong points there, and uh, they're not really grasped when people think of Habermas as merely nostalgic. Despite this sympathetic reading, Michael Warner is emphatically a critic, one of those who have tried to take public sphere theory beyond Habermas. The central bone of contention is Habermas's definition of the public sphere, which Warner finds restrictive. I think he's laying undue emphasis on the kinds of argumentation and reasoning that find their expression in politics. At one point in the book, he even defines a public as private people coming together to make public use of their reason. Well, that's one thing that people do as part of a public. It's very far from being the only thing that they do, and it's not even clear that it's always the most important thing that they do. They also come together to see each other in a kind of physical display and, and make their choices about their presentation of themselves in relation to each other. So I mentioned fashion earlier, but also just a sense of what is the nature of this community? How many kinds of people are involved? How, what's the kind of public space that we inhabit together? And these involve very visceral feelings. Visceral feelings about how to behave on the sidewalk, visceral feelings about how to dress in relation to other people, visceral feelings about other people's behavior in, in public. So I think uh, any real understanding of the public has to take in the full range of involvements that people have. So. It's one thing to emphasize reason and discourse forms that resemble argumentation. When you're talking about political publics or when you're talking about dominant publics, but we have publics that form around people who are not organized as a political unity, are organized maybe across national lines or very locally, or let's say across geographically dispersed areas like gay people often are, come into consciousness of themselves as gay people through media, but not as a political group necessarily, in the first instance, as just as gay people, just as people who find themselves through sexuality in a sexual subculture. Well, that's an example that forces us to rethink the relation between reason and other ways people have of being public or being involved in a public. And one of the things that I tried to emphasize in publics and counterpublics is that there's always a kind of tension or jockeying going on. And very often there are even antagonisms between publics, people who come together because of their shared understanding of a resistance to or antagonism against or distaste for what they understand as, as the dominant public. And these can be widely diverging. It might even describe equally evangelical Christians as a group and gay people as a group, or let's say hip-hop youth culture. These are different contexts in which people might have the same powerful sense of being invested in some kind of difference from or, or even antagonism to what they understand as a dominant world. Michael Warner is gay. He's written a book called The Trouble with Normal and edited a collection called Fear of a Queer Planet. 
He identifies with what is known as queer culture and queer theory. And these details, he insists, are pertinent. He does not accept the idea that the public is a place where arguments alone matter. Argument is good, he says, but argument alone leaves too much out, and usually to someone's detriment. The more we think of opinion as being just argument, the less it seems attached to any particular kind of person. It seems like everyone ought to be able to make arguments. Arguments ought to be valid or invalid on the strength of the arguments and not on the basis of who says them. Well, that's a good thing about arguments because it allows, it does in fact allow all kinds of people to make arguments and to try to get their arguments heard. But then of course it turns out that not everybody's arguments are heard in the same way. And one reason is that some kinds of people are more accustomed to making argument or to defining themselves through common styles of argument. And there's a certain style of being dispassionate in your presentation of argument that has prestige, that defines you as, let's say, a more calm or more authoritative kind of person or a more balanced kind of person. Uh, and people who seem passionately wrought up in their feelings or express themselves in a less educated or less refined idiom or who don't seem to be putting forward their own arguments in the most neutral way, those people will be heard less. And they will tend to be people who are already marginal in various ways. The more you have access to the educational system, the more likely you're you are to be heard as speaking general argument or general opinion. The more you have access to a kind of dominant style of public authority, the more you'll be heard as a disinterested observer. And actually, I think we're seeing this now in, the, in some of the problems of American politics around Obama, that people have a hard time hearing a black man as just speaking the neutral voice of public authority and therefore they you know they feel less abashed about interrupting him and shouting you lie on the floor of the house of representatives that there's a kind of disrespect that people don't think of as racially based but it is and uh, we don't think that the respect accorded to reasonable argument is subject to all of these discriminations of who you are and where you come from, and what kind of person you are, and how you're behaving in public. But in fact, the way people hear arguments is always inflected by the other grounds that, on which they accord respect and defer to people. Class, education, tone, race, uh, sensibility, and so on. And um, that introduces all kinds of new problems in political culture. Michael Warner's point here is that the ideal of disinterestedness is rarely as disinterested as it might seem. Let's say that someone like me, white, male, educated, and with access to a national radio network, claims that all these features of my situation are quite beside the point, that I want to be judged according to the validity of my arguments alone. Well. It's Warner's view that I lose nothing by this show of impersonality and impartiality because the things I claim to be disavowing actually define the public sphere, at least in its classical embodiments. But others who stand outside the dominant style, he says, have a lot to lose when nicely modulated arguments are the only acceptable way of addressing the public. If people feel that they can't be present that they can't be acknowledged, that they can't bring the full range of their thought, feeling, opinion, and investment to bear on that activity. If they have to park some of it at the door in order to be heard, then they're going to feel alienated, only partly represented, estranged from the public. And that's been the case historically in all kinds of ways. You know. The idea of the public came into being in a time when it was only property white men who were really in possession of the means of public opinion. And gradually the 
people have fought their way in, they've been drawn in partly by the lure of the idea of the public, by the way the public seems to appeal to all people as spontaneous private people, but they've had to fight their way in for real feedback, for real activity. And the tension between the way publics summon more people in and the way mechanisms of power keep them out is the great horizon of a lot of modern politics. It's, that's the field of antagonism in the modern world, is between the summoning power of public address and the finite and carefully controlled mechanisms for turning that that address into activity, into something that will meaningfully engage people in shaping their own history or giving them at least the feeling that they're shaping their own history. What Michael Warner calls the summoning power of the public is the promise of recognition and the chance to shape your own history, to act and not just be acted upon. Publicness, in this sense, is as much a glamour and a glory as it was of old when its radiance shone from the nobility alone. Those who feel excluded try to make themselves public and find creative ways to court the attention of the public eye. People find more and more ways of being public or making their publicness count. And as we've gotten into more and more media-saturated worlds, all kinds of groups of people are now visible and public in new ways, through fashion, through style, through popular culture, outside of the realm of politics. And there is a constant tension or a lot of different kinds of antagonism between the different ways people represent themselves politically and the different ways people represent themselves as visible or as members of a common community. And uh, a lot of those are, are meant to force conflict. You know, when people exaggerate their public presentation to create a sense of themselves as part of a minority group of one way or another, to draw attention to it, to remind you that they're there, there's suddenly a politics of visibility that is part of our public life. That's a distinctively modern form of politics. And this, all of the politics of multiculturalism have to do with this new condition of publics. That is, it's not just in political arenas of argument and political representation and policy that we make ourselves felt and present. It's in everything. People have newer resources for making their private lives publicly relevant and for bringing political resources to bear to make a new kind of private life possible. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. A public, Michael Warner has said, is constituted by attention. And attention is limited. It can expand with new media, but it is still finite. So publics, according to Warner's theory, tend to jockey, as he says, and compete. Some publics exaggerate their difference from the norm in order to court negative attention. And at the extreme, he says, there are publics that are defined by their antagonistic relation to the wider society. These are what he calls counterpublics. A counterpublic is, in, in one sense, just a public. Uh, and... Uh, and you might say that, in fact, it, it's an unnecessary distinction because this is just the dynamism of, of modern life is that people are always forming publics around new tastes, new ideas, emerging senses of community, and there are always antagonisms among them. This is what politics is, is also the, the jockeying among different understandings of the public. 
But I think that there is a meaningful difference because of how many publics there are in the modern world that seem to be formed very centrally around an idea of an antagonism, a shared sense that a dominant public has some competing set of values and a competing sense of identity or some competing norms, like evangelical Christians. You can see evangelicals of, well, the, in one way of the 1920s and 30s when the fundamentalist idea was formed, in another way going back into the 19th century, in other ways going all the way back into the 18th century when it first becomes meaningful to speak of evangelicals as a, as a distinct form. In this whole history, evangelicals have repeatedly, in different ways, appealed to the same idea that they are reacting against a dominant secular world by organizing themselves as evangelicals. They very much do it as a public. It's through preaching publics and media publics and radio publics and print publics and cheap print and popular Bibles and so on and street witnessing. All these practices that really put together the sense of an evangelical public, but they do so always under the assumption that this public is a way of being called out from the dominant public and changing that dominant public through a kind of opposition, through a very meaningful and active and engaged struggle. So evangelical Christians like gay people, they wouldn't like this analogy, uh, are come into being uh, as a community, partly through their shared sense of being differentiated from, being antagonistic to, and I might say also being despised by a dominant public. I think a lot of these very visceral feelings of being excluded or being looked down upon are really important in the dynamics of public formation and really form something important about why people get invested in a social movement like gay rights or a social movement like the Christian right. It's because they have this prior sense in being part of a public, of being fundamentally different in who they are from the kind of person that the dominant public is willing to address. Evangelical Christianity, according to Michael Warner, defines itself by its rejection of and its rejection by secular society. The antagonism is intrinsic to the group's existence, which is why he calls it a counterpublic. And this is something, he says, that evangelicals and gays have in common, however much members of both groups might dislike the comparison. Another commonality is the initially private character of what is being made public. In one case, an inwardly experienced religious calling, in the other, a sexual preference. And what is more quintessentially private than sex? One standard old-fashioned way of understanding sexuality was just to say, well, it's just purely private, that is to say hormonally private. It's in the inner working of their organism and what's, what makes them have the desires they have, the identities they have. But that's an understanding of what sexuality is that we've increasingly had to revise as we see how important it is to people to... Uh, organizing themselves as a certain kind of community or the way we see increasingly the way people adopt styles of understanding themselves from public media. So it doesn't seem that there is just one set of possibilities for sexual identity or sexual behavior that are relatively constant over time and they're just reproduced in private life. It seems, on the other hand, that the field of possibilities that are open to people for sexual behavior, sexual understanding, sexual identity, sexual community, and sexual politics are constantly evolving. And evolving because of this highly charged dynamic of the formation of publics. When gay people realized that they could organize themselves as gay people and have media in which they reflected on what it meant to be gay and which they could make themselves visible and develop organizations and and ways of manifesting themselves and ways of coming together to see themselves in public then they no longer felt like isolated homosexuals then they felt like gay people that was a 
crucial transformation in the emergence of a modern idea of what it means to be gay or what it means to be a member of any sexual community. And I think that's what we now understand as the sexual revolution was a result of that. There, I think there's a lot of evidence that something really changed in the way people behave in the third quarter of the 20th century. That is to say, after somewhere after World War II uh, and culminating in the late 50s to early 70s, something really reoriented itself in the kinds of sexual identities and practices and understandings we find in private life. And you can measure this in the age at which people got married. You can measure this in how people regarded unwed mothers. You can measure this in how gay people behaved. You can measure this in how people uh, understood gender roles in both in private life and in public life. There's just an overwhelming sense that that really was a window of transformation. And I think that one reason is that new media made it possible for people to see themselves as sexual beings in public in new ways. To see yourself as a sexual being in public is to enter, Michael Warner says, an evolving field of possibilities. Sexuality, for him, is not an accidental characteristic which makes no difference to citizenship or personhood. It's a vital part of who the person or the citizen is. Accordingly, participation in what Warner calls the highly charged dynamic of an evolving public doesn't just express a constant sexual identity. It allows this identity to develop and to change. We always have different meanings of what it is to see each other just as persons, just as people. And it used to mean paying no attention to gender or sexuality or or other styles of belonging. And now we realize that those are important dimensions of what it means to be a person, and that paying attention to each other as persons doesn't mean blocking that out or assuming that lots of kinds of people just aren't at the table, which is what all too often it, it meant in practice when we were talking to each other as persons. It meant that only certain kinds of persons were at the table, or that everyone else had to behave in a way that was alien to the way they found themselves identified as in the first place. People can bring a fuller range of their investments and ways of being into public now, and that's, that's a great thing about the way modern publics is organized. But it also means a lot of unpredicted kinds of conflict, and a lot of people are very disturbed by conflict in something that they feel is important to their intimate private life. People don't like to think of something as important to them as their gender identity being constantly subject to conflict. And nevertheless, there it is as, a, as an important feature of our life. And so we have both uh, utopian investments in making this part of conflict, that is that I can bring more of my life into relevance in public life. I can come out and, and not be dismissed from, from being taken seriously. But at the same time, that means that there are more and more parts of life that are conflicted, that are subject to disapproval, resistance, condemnation, shame, visceral disgust, People feel exposed and vulnerable in a lot of the kinds of conflict that are distinctive of modern society, as well as hopeful and heavily invested in those kinds of conflict. And I think to some degree, everyone feels the pull of both of those. That is, really wanting to prevail and thinking that we need to insist on the, the conflicted dimension of public life. On the other hand, everyone's a bit ambivalent about having everything always conflicted all the time. And there is something also very appealing about the idea of uh, peaceful coexistence where private life could just be private life. And I think we have to recognize that both of those forces are powerful utopian aspects of the modern public sphere. So there will 
always be attempts to bring more and more parts of private life into public relevance and to challenge the assumption of dominant culture. And there will always be a kind of resentment against the very fact that we have such challenges. There's, people are uneasy about that. Well, I, I say there will always be a resentment. Actually, I don't know about that. I think that's an open question. Maybe people can learn to overcome resentment about the give and take and challenge and difference and, and mix of public life. But because there are so many visceral attitudes always involved and because the challenges are always emerging in unpredictable places, people are probably going to be continually tested in their ability to recognize other people as persons in their ability to recognize other people as members of the same fabric of community, the same field of public conversation. Constantly recurring style of politics in the modern life is a very distasteful style of politics, but it, it is constantly recurring, is the attempt to just exclude some kinds of people from visibility, from the public field. crucial role in Michael Warner's account of how publics are made. And media, it hardly needs saying, have undergone an extraordinarily rapid evolution in recent years, to the point where the fully equipped individual now sometimes seems to be a public of one. Michael Warner has been watching quizzically as new media, cell phones for example, alter our conception of the public. I remember key moment in my own adaptation to cell phone life was I was friends with a 19-year-old who was very cell phone dependent and one day his cell phone broke and he was distraught. He said, I'm not going to have any social life. And I thought, my first reaction was, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard. How could your social life be dependent on your cell phone? But then I realized, well, that's pointing to something really interesting, which is that cell phone usage constructs practically for people, a new sense of what their social life is. And that new sense of what a social life is has powerful attractions to people. And so understanding the medium means understanding what those attractions are to people. And that's also a new sense, maybe a new generationally inflected sense of what the public is too. I mean, cell phones, of course, differ in dramatic ways from our standard idea of what a public is because they're not broadcast media. But that's one of the fascinating things about contemporary cultures, that we're shifting from the broadcast model in a lot of areas to more of a network understanding of how social life is pulled together. And that's one of the big open questions right now about publics is, does that mean we are moving away from an understanding of ourselves as being bound together as a public? Whether networked media will eventually undo our sense of being bound together as a public is a question that's probably going to wait a long time for a definitive answer. What Michael Warner's work reveals, in the meanwhile, is that the struggle for public presence and recognition has been, in the phrase he used earlier, the great horizon of a lot of modern politics. It's hard to imagine this struggle not continuing in some form. In fact, Warner suggests that in some ways we have barely gotten used to the modern idea of the public. It can still surprise and sometimes alarm us, he says in conclusion, that we have such powerful and intimate relations with strangers. I find it fascinating that another com very common feature we can say about all ideas of the public is the importance of strangers to the way we imagine publics and that once we think of ourselves as part of a public, we think of ourselves as being meaningfully related to people who are nevertheless strangers to us. That's a very striking thing about, let's say, national feeling or the kinds of feeling that attach to any kind of public. Whether you think of yourself as part of a taste public or a sports public or 
a national public or a, a public of a sexual community or a, a whatever. That what this means is you you have real commonalities, not superficial ones or not resemblances of opinion with, but shared memories, shared feeling, shared awareness, shared interests with people who are nevertheless total strangers to you. So we have kinds of relationships and and ways of understanding the most important dimension of our social belonging that are really new and uh, feel intimate, but are also the products of a public culture. And they can erupt in all kinds of unpredicted ways. So let's say a sports team has a big victory and there's a spontaneous outburst of intense emotion about it uh, that makes people, you know, we talked earlier about, is it meaningful to speak of a Yankees public? Well, this is one way in which it is. You see the spontaneous explosions of feeling, or at least what's experienced as spontaneous explosions of feeling around these events, and people are experiencing in that not just their joy in the Yankees, but their commonality with the joy of all the other Yankees fans. That's why people go around honking horns and hooting at each other and waving to each other in stadiums and putting on paraphernalia is to make themselves visible to each other as fans. Well, that's a very powerful investment in that. And that means that people are deeply, passionately, physically, viscerally involved with strangers in a way that has not been true through most of human history. The, the whole idea of a stranger is a different idea now than it has been through most of human history. And people are, in a very uneven and fitful way, beginning to learn what it means to be so intimately involved with strangers. I think people are, in a lot of ways, very panicked about it. A lot of the intense investment people have in the idea of family and family life is partly to make more familiar the world that they in fact live in, in which their generational memories, their tastes and spontaneous feelings are shared with strangers, not just with family. Michael Warner, professor of English at Yale and the author of Publics and Counterpublics. I'll conclude my series on the origins of the modern public next time with a look at the public sphere today. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.